Hello, I'm Ari. And I'm Claudine. Welcome to Proving the Negative. We're a podcast all about exploring the different sides of cybersecurity, from political science to computer science, international relations to mathematics. Join us as we talk to our friends about the work they do. All right, Claudine, this week we're doing you, no, phrasing. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) No! Oh, please leave that in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to PTN Pod, proving the negative. So, wanting about in cybersecurity this week, we're going to intro just like we did last time. Claudine, why do you do the work that you do in the grand scheme of things? The online safety bill's been in the news quite a bit recently. The purpose of the online safety bill is supposed to be to protect users from certain harm that they might encounter when using social media. There's a bunch of different types of harms. The new and controversial bit of the bill is referred to colloquially as the legal but harmful content. And so this is content on social media that is not illegal in any sense, but that might still be harmful to users. This bill is trying to deal with that illegal content, but also impose a a duty of care, or you mentioned in your episode, duty of care, this is a slightly different version, imposes a duty of care on social media providers and search engines, or at least the very large ones, to protect their users from harm from legal content. One of the things we talk about is qualitative and quantitative data. Why is this so contentious? Quantitative data tends to be seen, especially in STEM fields, as better data, survey statistics, that kind of thing. Qualitative data is a little bit different. It tends to be done on smaller samples. You shouldn't impose any sort of preconceived notions. I tend to think that the best approach is mixed methods. There are situations in which quantitative data is absolutely appropriate, and there are cases where it's not. In those situations, you need to use qualitative analysis. We will also talk about dark patterns or deceptive design. They're meant to nudge you in a specific direction or to take a specific action, let's say in an app or in a website. When you're doing online shopping and it's really hard to remove something from your cart or you can't find the unsubscribe option in an email that you're getting for a newsletter. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Claudine. I'm based in the Human-Centered Computing Group here at Oxford, and I study the effect of social media use on well-being. When we use social media, we will have emotional responses to the content that we see. There are a number of reasons why we might respond a specific way to certain types of content. One aspect of it that I think tends to be overlooked a lot in social media research is the effect of individual context, socioeconomic background, your gender identity, your ethnicity, where you grew up, what your native language is, all those different factors. And that's your broader background context. And then there's also your individual context in the moment that varies depending on your mood, your personality, et cetera. If you're feeling bad because you've just had a professional letdown and then you get on Twitter and you see that a colleague has posted about a success in their professional life, you might feel bad about that in that moment, but there's nothing objectively wrong with that content. You might feel completely different about it at a different point in time. I study mundane social media content that would not be flagged by community standards or considered illegal or objectively harmful. Individual differences impact how we respond to social media content. I try to figure out how people develop strategies to address those emotions and what user controls we can provide to make that experience a little bit more seamless. Something I hear a lot is by looking at it from this angle, I'm putting a lot of burden, a lot of stress on the user to manage their own social media experience. 
that's fair, but there are cases in which it is the responsibility of the platform to manage and to moderate. When it comes to personal and individual preferences, users should have the appropriate tools at their disposal. What is it that you're curious about? This seems like a really interesting mix of social and technical understanding. Oh, that's a good question. I, I think I just sidestepped into it accidentally. I became really interested in social media and how it impacts people in ways that aren't often talked about. We talk a lot about what I consider the big bad harms of social media, child sexual exploitation, sexual harassment, cyberbullying. But a lot of day-to-day -day negative experiences that I was having on social media had nothing to do with that. A lot of it had to do with feeling bad after reading the news or feeling stressed out because other people seemed to be doing better than I was. On a very selfish level, I started wondering why that was and how we could go about managing that and helping other people who were probably going through the same thing that I was, helping them manage those slow and incremental harms that build up over time. There's a lot of moving pieces here. What do you measure? That's a perpetual struggle, to be honest. There's no one way to do it. The way I go about it is that I try to take as broad a view as I can, trying to parse out the individual characteristics that could potentially influence whether or not someone is likely to have a harmful experience around news content on social media, specifically COVID-19. I look at context. I'm currently working on a project about the negative impact of social media on people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and how they cope with that. I'm working on a mobile experience sampling method, which allows us to collect data in real time from users as they're using social media. I don't know anything about post-traumatic stress disorder. For people who don't know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is a condition that can occur in someone who has experienced a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. It can lead to long-term, potentially debilitating psychological effects that can be triggered by something in their environment that reminds them of the event or that reminds them of some aspect of the event. In order to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, there are a number of criteria that someone would have to fulfill. If someone has developed PTSD from a very serious car accident, the experience is the physical experience of having been in the car accident, having witnessed news footage of a, of a really serious car accident, and then having a negative psychological impact after that would not qualify someone for post-traumatic stress disorder. You could experience post-traumatic stress disorder in the clinical sense if the traumatic event happened to someone close to you or a loved one. Or in some cases, first responders will develop what's known as a vicarious post-traumatic stress disorder from repeated exposure to traumatic events, firefighters, police officers, et cetera. During the pandemic, I ran a, a national survey about social media use and COVID-19 related social media use. So exchanging news or information or looking at content about COVID-19. PCL5 is a standard screening questionnaire for PTSD, not a definitive diagnostic tool. I should make that clear. Asked them to fill that out. And what we found was that there were certain types of social media use that were more closely associated with higher levels of PTSD symptoms, symptoms that would otherwise have qualified somebody as being above a certain score threshold, considered as likely to be having PTSD and be referred on for further examination. We did screen out individuals who were first responders or who had had COVID-19 or who had a close friend or family member who had been seriously ill from COVID-19. Having done that screening, active use was more clicking, posting, interacting with social media. 
people who use social media passively, scrolling and browsing is associated with higher levels of post-traumatic stress symptoms. There really hasn't been a lot of research on the social media triggers. A lot of existing controls, filtering content or you know, blocking content are pretty, they're not very fine-tuned. I don't think this is specific to people who have experienced trauma or who are dealing with symptoms of post-traumatic stress. This seems to be more of a case study that could be representative of other groups. Social media giants don't have a very good history of collaborating with researchers. So, for example, there was a really famous, I say really famous, I know about it. <laughs> the study manipulated people's news feeds just to see how it would change their emotions. So they looked at how they could impact how people felt. It didn't have any ethical oversight. Hopefully we're doing better. Your work, what does it look like? Mobile experience sampling isn't done through the platforms directly. We are developing an app that users will download on their phones. It will prompt them a certain number of times throughout the day. So they'll get a little, so the app is just running in the background of their phone. And then a few times a day, they'll get a pop-up while they're using social media. They'll get a little message that pops up on their phone and they'll be asked to complete a quick questionnaire about the type of content that they're looking at, how it's making them feel and what else they're doing. For example, are they using social media on a break or are they looking at it while they're at work or while they're doing another task? The reason we ask about this is, again, it goes back to context. It's one of the critical things to understand about how and why people have the reactions that they do to social media content. Their use doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happens in a physical environment and in a cyber-physical environment with contexts that are hard to discern just from looking at, let's say, quantitative data that you might collect. So we asked them specifically about the other things that they're doing and some of the other things that are happening in their life throughout the course of this study. We'll collect data from them several times a day and both in the morning and the evening. We'll ask them some questions about any significant changes that day. If at any point they see something on social media that elicits a particularly strong emotion from them, they can also press a button that will always be overlaid on top of their social media feed. They can just bring up the survey at that time. At the end of that several week period, and the idea is to see if there are any particularly strong correlations between some of those environmental factors and their emotional responses. We are getting around the social media platforms by doing it this way. And as you rightly pointed out, we do need ethical review. For a study like this, there are certainly some major data protection implications. We need to be really mindful of that while we're designing the study. So we're trying to ensure uh, security and, and privacy and GDPR compliance by design. Mm. How have you approached the biggest challenge in your research? Since I, I don't come from a technical background, sometimes it can be a little bit daunting to go for these types of projects that have a strong technical component and involve collaboration with, with other people who have more of a software engineering or more of a classical computer science background than I do. So I think the biggest challenge that I have is more of a technical one because I, I think I'm at a stage in my training where I know enough to get myself into trouble, but I don't know enough to get myself out of trouble. I learned that trying to go it alone is a very bad idea and that if you don't collaborate and seek help from others, you're, you're just going to be in for a world of hurt. When we talked to Mary, she said something about how there's having confidence in what you want to do. You can use that to, to hang other people's expertise off of. You direct your work, but then you draw in the techies to support you. Do you ever find that more technical people, they're more confident that they know what right and correct looks like? 
it sounds with your work like sometimes you just have to explore the question and the answer presents itself. I found that to be an interesting difference. I come from a background where it's all about shades of gray in a lot of cases, right? I mean, political science is, I mean, politics is the art of the possible and law is very much, it's not necessarily about what's objectively right as much as what you can argue or what you can prove. That's a very different mindset to what I've experienced from the people around me who have a much more, I don't want to say binary, but who have a much more clear cut idea about what they want to do and the approaches that they take. I find that sometimes it can take a little bit of work to get on the same wavelength. And that was a challenge that I had to learn to adapt to. When you say you collect qualitative data or use qualitative methods, why is that different? Why is that something that presents a challenge? I don't think it necessarily has to, but I think it certainly can in the sense that, at least in the research that I do, a lot of it is exploratory, which sounds weird because you think that social media is something that's been studied to death. But on the scale of things, it's actually... A fairly new field. If we think about it, social media has been around for, I think, what, 20 years or so, and has really only been really widespread since the advent of Facebook. So, I mean, I was a teenager before I got my first Facebook page. I was well into high school. It's a fairly new thing. And the areas of it that have been studied tend to be clustered around certain topics. For example, body image or eating disorders and around very specific subpopulations, right? Teenage girls and eating disorders, for example, is a very common area of population of study in social media. When you're doing qualitative analysis in certain areas of social media, and as it pertains to computer science, you do occasionally end up with these spaces where there's just nothing. There's really not that much research. Research around post-traumatic stress disorder and social media triggers is really not an area that's been studied all that much other areas in certain subpopulations just really haven't been studied all that much. So you can end up in a situation where you're kind of navigating in the dark a little bit. And so you're starting off with some research questions and a hypothesis and certain assumptions, but especially with qualitative data, if you're starting from a grounded approach, which means that you collect the data and then you extract themes and topics, you're not going in with any preconceived notions. It sounds like you're comfortable with uncertainty. Yes. I occasionally have stress dreams about it, but other than that, yes. <laughs> About social media in particular or all computer scientists? <laughs> all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> I can't think of anything really that lets me filter what I, what I see. In addition to the actual content, you've also got advertising. Not only is there the, the content filtering, but there's also the stuff you have zero control over. What's been the biggest surprise? It's been a lot of sort of accumulation of little ones. They've accumulated to form the general challenge of being okay with in, with uncertainty in a situation where you feel like the minority. I don't really have a technical background and I am in a more technical field. General uncertainty in terms of thinking, you know, when I'm doing research or when I want to start a new, a new research project, it still happens to me very regularly that I look at something and go, oh, I don't. I don't know how to do this, right? Or I don't know how to code in this programming language and I don't have a choice. This is the only sort of framework that exists to do X and teaching yourself to do it and getting into it and thinking, hmm, do I actually, do I actually know what I'm doing here? That's always a little bit of a struggle for me. It's, it's not the biggest single challenge, but I think that is a constant that you have to manage because if you don't, it can become paralyzing, right? If, you're, if you sort of uh, allow yourself to be too uncertain and too insecure about things, then it can become paralyzing and nothing gets done. But on the other hand, if you don't have a, a healthy level of skepticism and self-reflection, then you can end up doing something that is 
not sufficiently rigorous or that isn't the appropriate approach. It's figuring out where the balance of self-doubt and self-assurance is. I'm always, even now, and I'm, I'm a fairly late stage at this point, just being okay with that level of uncertainty and that and always being on that level of risk and knowing that sometimes you just don't know. Always learning is, uh, is okay, but it is, it is kind of a daily struggle. I'm just fascinated by, I refer to it as the squishy bits, um, the sort of like the, the squishy bits of research. And I really, I'm really interested in life, how life shapes the way we uh, think about things and how we interact with technology. How do the squishy bits relate to cybersecurity? Why are they important? If you look at a really basic notion that cybersecurity has to do with protecting the security of information systems, infrastructure, this isn't strictly speaking cybersecurity. However, there has been an interesting shift, I think largely due to the advent of social media and connected digital devices and smart home ecosystems, that humans are increasingly in the loop of technology and are increasingly permanently connected to technology, in some cases 24-7. There's been an interesting expansion of cybersecurity to include more and more of a human-centered focus. When we look at the individual and the way an individual experiences social media, for instance, that is more what I would consider cyber safety, the general psychological and emotional safety of when, when being online. That's becoming an increasingly important aspect of being safe in general and of being secure in general. Cybersecurity is going to include cyber safety as a notion. There is some debate there right now as to whether cyber safety and cybersecurity should be considered part of the same general group. I think they should. I know some of our more technically minded friends might disagree with me on that. Given how connected humans are to technology in general, that they should at this point be considered part of systems and infrastructure. I would disagree with you saying that what you do is not cybersecurity. I, I think it very much is. Cyber comes from this cybernetics, a self-governing system. You have a complex system of systems. There's all sorts of interactions that go on and it just presents a massive, I would call it a threat surface, meaning there are all sorts of things that could go wrong. So this, this surface is quite wide. You can't ignore safety to find the vulnerabilities and the gaps and places where things could go wrong. You have to understand that there are different moving pieces and people are, of course, a really important part of those systems. Cyber safety, that's incredibly important. The nature of what we're doing means it's interdisciplinary and doesn't quite fit into preconceived buckets. The types of people who are valuable in terms of skill set to cybersecurity has changed significantly, even just since I started in 2018. It's really important to be flexible. There's always going to be certain tensions around what's considered part of the field, what isn't considered part of the field, and where we draw the line in terms of being inclusionary or exclusionary. There was a brief period last year. I was working on a project of circumventing dark patterns in apps. This plays into social media, as you pointed out earlier, Ari, uh, to do with advertising. Dark patterns can play a huge role in targeted advertising and often do. And I was interested to figure out how people felt about dark patterns, whether users, whether users necessarily felt that dark patterns were bad. Even the word, right? Dark pattern sounds menacing and ominous. It's really hard to ask people about dark patterns. They're hidden. They're not obvious. We can ask about them conceptually, but that's different to asking about specific experiences. That's the reason I'm doing experience sampling now. You can ask people a questionnaire about their social media use and say, you know, what types of social media content make you 
angry, sad, happy, whatever. What do you think were some of the factors in your life that influenced that? I can ask them those questions, but you're just never going to get the same kind of precision of data than you would if you ask people in the moment when they're actually experiencing the emotion or they're using the technology. You're never going to get the same level of, of clarity about context when asking people about those experiences in hindsight as you would in the moment. There's this whole conversation we have about privacy where we think that people don't care about their privacy. They say they do, but they don't actually do it. And a lot of studies that this has come from are based on reported data. So they, they have run surveys, they've asked people, but not at the time where, they're, where they have to actually make a choice to share information. Or I actually would like to ask you about the online safety bill. Oh, sure. It's a bill currently working its way through parliament at the moment. It's been evolving for the last at least five years, potentially longer, depending on who you ask. The purpose of this bill, if it passes, it would impose a duty of care on social media providers and search engines to protect their users from certain harms that they might encounter when using their services. They do things called calls for evidence periodically. I am currently working on one, which I need to send out very soon, on some of the provisions in the bill as it currently is that I think should be amended based on research evidence. Unfortunately, academia tends to be a little bit underrepresented in the experts that they have been calling for this bill. It's been a lot of industry people and people from nonprofit organizations. There have not been a lot of academics involved. Why is the online safety bill important? One of the aspects of this bill that have been neglected, and I should say that this is my personal opinion, it does not reflect the University of Oxford or anyone in my group, disclosure over. They really have not solicited a lot of experts in the field of human-centered computing, specifically around issues like user controls. There's a big thing that's been added to the online safety bill about empowering users to have more control over harmful content that they see. Theoretically, that's great. The problem is there's really no detail in terms of the implementation and how that would be done. And we really don't know what form that could take. And again, at the moment, the language is extremely vague. It, I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially says that, uh, you know, users should have access to tools that enable them to um, sort of reduce their exposure to certain types of harmful content. Well, what does that mean, right? What is the scope? The way it is, it could mean that what we currently have is sufficient. There really isn't much of a focus on users' needs in this bill. And that's the main focus of the recommendations that I'm, I'm going to be submitting. Uh, so what does that mean? Potentially what's happening is that the scope is wrong. For example, there could be a situation in which content discussing self-harm is around supporting individuals who are attempting to recover from self-harm or who are trying to manage their self-harm. The concern is that if the guidance that is going to be provided to social media companies, uh, which will be uh, given by Ofcom, is not sufficiently narrow and is not sufficiently specific, then there is a risk that this power will either be delivered far too broadly, in which case a lot of the good potential good will also be wiped out with a lot of the potential harm, or that it will be performed far too narrowly, in which case the mark will be missed for a large number of groups who might be potentially harmed by content, but who are just being left out of the equation entirely because their specific interests may not have been factored into the assessments that social media companies will have to perform to determine whether or not a certain type of content is at risk of being harmful. 
Do you have any tips for keeping up to speed with cybersecurity? I think Twitter is always a good place to start. For the types of work that I do, journals like Social Media and Society or New Media and Society, human-centered computing conferences, Kai Peters and Human Interaction Wired, you know, is a good mainstream publication to follow. The Cyber Legal blog run by an attorney named Graham Smith. And where can our listeners find out more? You can follow me on Twitter. I post there rarely, but I do post at Claudine Tinsman. Join us next week for another fascinating conversation. In the meantime, you can tweet at us at HelloPTNPod, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. The title there is PTNPod. See you next week. Bye. This has been a podcast from the Center for Doctoral Training in Cybersecurity at the University of Oxford, funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council.